We're continuing our series. We're continuing uh, upon the idea of a supernatural gift that has been given to us in the person of the Holy Spirit, which we talked about in week one. The supernatural love that the Spirit empowers in us, which we talked about last week. Today we're talking about supernatural unity. Next week I'm so excited that Pastor Alfred Colembo is going to be with us. He's got a long history with Linwood. Linwood's played a big part in in his ministry, in the training for his ministry, which now um, has reached a, a tremendous tremendous scale in the country of Zambia. And he's going to be preaching in service, but he's also going to be sticking around after service for a missions lunch. And I cannot commend that highly enough to you. If you have not uh, made plans to be a part of that, please make plans to be a part of that. Please RSVP. You can use your connection card if you want, or you can go into our church center app and RSVP. We're looking for five or six people to bring a dessert as well. So please indicate that on your connection card today. Let us know if you can bring a dessert or log into the uh, Church Center app and let us know if you're going to be there uh, because you won't want to miss uh, won't want to miss that. And all along, we're talking about moving beyond the human, moving beyond the natural, moving beyond what is something we can do in and of ourselves, moving beyond the forms of religion to the supernatural substance of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I've said several times that the Holy Spirit brings the substance to all of the forms, to the Bible reading, to the prayer, to the worship, to the the fellowship. When we move beyond just the form and we let the Spirit empower what we're doing and empower the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ, we experience the supernatural at work within us. So today we're going to be in John 17. That's where we will begin. We've spent a lot of time in John so far, and we'll continue to do that, John, and in the book of Acts. And uh, John 17 kind of comes at the end of what is referred to as the last discourse, the last discourse between Christ and the disciples in the gospel of John. It starts in John 13 with the washing of the feet in the context of the Last Supper, and then he begins to teach them. And so at the beginning of this series, we looked at John 14, where he starts teaching them about the Spirit and promising that the Holy Spirit is going to come and fleshing out what that looks like. Then in John 17, we have this beautiful prayer that is recorded As Jesus prays, and he prays for himself, he prays for the disciples, and then he prays for all those who will come after. He prays for us. So the night before he was crucified, Jesus prayed for Linwood Wesleyan Church. Maybe not by name, but he prayed for all those who would come after, as we'll see in the passage here. So if you turn to page uh, 1680 in the the blue um, hardcover Bibles, we'll read John 17, verses 20 through 20. Three, And here's what he says as he's continuing in this prayer. He says, My prayer is not for them alone, for the disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. It's powerful. It's powerful to consider what was on Jesus' mind, what he was praying for in the night that he was betrayed, less than 24 hours from the cross. He was praying for us. He was praying that we would be one 
that we would be one, that all of them, all of us, would be one. And he equates that to the same degree of unity as he has with the Father. That's the degree of oneness that he wanted for us. And that message that I preached over a year ago on a, on a united family of families, I said, unity is not uniformity, it's oneness moving in the same direction. That was the bottom line. That unity is not uniformity, it's oneness moving in the same direction. And Christ prayed that we would be one, but he prayed that for a very specific purpose. Did you catch it? It's highlighted in white there. Anytime you see a so that or a therefore or because of, it's scriptures making the application really, really easy for you. He says, I'm praying that they'll be one just as you and I are one so that for a purpose, so that the world may believe. That was the reason. It wasn't for him and it wasn't primarily for us. It was primarily for them, for the world outside. He was praying that those who would come to believe because of the disciples' message would be one so that the world may believe that God sent him, that he was the only begotten Son of God and that they would believe, that they would rely upon, cling to, and trust in Christ and Christ alone as their Lord and their Savior. This is a big deal. This is a big deal because because Christ is saying that when we get this right, when we are one and we are moving in the same direction, the world sees that and it causes them to believe that Jesus is who he said he is, that he did what he said he would do, and that he is worth following for the rest of their lives. He goes on and kind of restates it uh, in verses 22 through 23. He, he puts another layer to this. He, he exposes that the goal and the purpose is complete unity, not partial unity, but complete unity. He says in verse 22, he says, I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. So there's the purpose again. The goal is complete unity. And the reason, the so that, is that the world may know. The world may believe. The world may respond in faith. And this complete unity is the unity that we have with each other, but it's also the unity that we have with God. Do you see that? He said, I and you and you and me. He's saying that, that unity, supernatural unity, takes place when I am one with the Holy Spirit and you are one with the Holy Spirit. And if you and I are both one with the Holy Spirit, then guess what? We're one with each other. You see how that works? I do this sometimes in marriage counseling because sometimes people will come together into a counseling office, and it's the first time they've talked in a while because things are not good, and they are far apart. And I say, okay, it may be a little too much to imagine moving towards each other right now. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of pain. I understand that. But can you both agree that God is good and that he wants what's best for your marriage? And if they're believers, they can usually nod in agreement to that. And I say, okay, so how about instead of you choosing to move towards her, which may feel like a concession, you think, no, she needs to come to me. Or, no, he needs to come to me. Say, let's figure out where God is, and let's both move towards him together. And the closer we get to God, the closer we'll be getting to each other at the same time. And the more oneness we have with God, the more oneness we will have with each other. And then things start to soften, and things start to work, and things start to come together. 
I was also reminded of this song. I'll just confess, some, sometimes as a pastor, you have to endure songs that you don't really like because they work or because other people like them or because they fit the moment or whatever. When I was on staff at a, at a large church out in Casper, Wyoming, and the worship leader had this favorite song, and he loved to play it after the offering, and he must have done it once a month at least. It certainly felt like we did it every single week. And it was this bouncy kind of, the Jesus in me loves the Jesus in you. And it kind of went back and forth like that, and, and I hated that song. I just couldn't stand it. And so every time they start playing it or I'd see it in the worship, oh, man, we got to do, maybe I'll need to go to the bathroom. And I'd step out, you know, and it was my issue. It was my junk, right? And that song came back to mind because that's exactly what we're talking about here, that the Jesus in me chooses to love the Jesus in you even when we have disagreements, even when we have things that we don't agree about, even when we come from very different uh, worlds, so to speak, socioeconomic or background or culturally speaking, the Jesus in me can choose to love the Jesus in you. And if that doesn't happen, if we don't allow the Holy Spirit to empower that to happen for us, then what we run the risk of is the ego in me hates the ego in you, or the ego in me dislikes and is allergic to, in some way, the ego in you. And our egos can clash, right? But when the Jesus in me loves the Jesus in you, then the last line of that little chorus says, you're easy, you're easy to love. Because the Jesus in me, it's easy for the Jesus in me to love the Jesus in you. It can be really, really hard sometimes for the ego in me to like something that the ego in you does. But Jesus didn't say, my command is that you would like one another. He said, my command is that you would love one another, agape one another, self-sacrificingly surrender yourself for one another. And so the question is, did Jesus get what he asked for? Did Jesus' prayer get answered that we just read, that we've just studied and considered for a few moments? And I would say it doesn't appear that he did sometimes. I mean, look around. Look at the world. Look, at, look just within the church at the amount of disunity that there is. I'm told that there are over 1,600 Protestant denominations comprising 300,000 local churches. And many of those, uh, upward between a fourth and a third of the churches in the country today are non-denominational churches. So you could say there's over 100,000 different denominations when you factor in non-denominational churches. That's not the point. The point is, how did so many of them come to be? How How did so many of these different denominations come to be? Well, I think we ought to sprinkle the child, and I think we ought to baptized by immersion at an age of accountability. Well, I disagree, so I'm going to go over here, and this is how we're going to do it in my denomination, and we're going to go over here, and this is how we're going to do it in our denomination. And, and you see those splits take place. So many in certain denominations have 30 or 40 or 50 different iterations of an initial denomination because of the splits. Even in church history, you hear about the great schism in the East and the West uh, and the Catholic Church. And, and so this isn't a new thing. It's been taking place for some time. But we see that so often we are less united than Christ would have liked. In fact, one of my favorite things about the Wesleyan Church as I have learned about Wesleyan Church history is that the Wesleyan Church of today is the result of a merger of two different denominations that said we have so much in common. We could accomplish more together than we can ever accomplish 
apart from each other. And so the Wesleyan Methodist Church and the Pilgrim Holiness Church actually merged together and became the Wesleyan Church. And I think that's a powerful example of the type of unity that we're called to have one with another. Now, are we going to get all those 1,600 different denominations to merge into a single? I would love to see that. I'm not going to hold my breath. But I do think that our part to play would be to not malign them, not criticize them, not call out, and not tell jokes about a certain denomination or a certain group of people. Because when we do that, we might think it's funny, a little inside joke, but the world is watching saying they can't, they can't even like each other. They can't even love each other within the family of God. How does that lift up the name of Christ? How does that make all the things that he said true? And so that's the first thing that we can do. But, but I don't want to get fixed on that, fixated on that, because just look at Sunday mornings. There can be segregation. There can be segregation on Sunday mornings, and there are, are congregations that, that are just a certain uh, ethnicity or a certain, uh, certain tribe or a certain group of people or a certain preference that they have. Uh, we see a history of violence inside and outside of the church, the idea of holy war, and I'm not sure where that fits in the command to love one another as I have loved you, laying down my life for you, so you are to love one another. I'm not quite sure how these things fit together. And just the idea of church hopping, you know, well, I'll go to that church for a while until he says something I don't like or until the level of commitment gets a little too high, and, and then I'll go somewhere else and consume my Christianity somewhere else. And that's not the type of supernatural unity that Christ envisioned and prayed for here on the last night of his life. But there was a time, there was a time, and we do have an example. Before we get there, I I ran across this funny little story and I wanted to share it with you. Uh, There was a man who was shipwrecked on a desert island, and he lived there for about 20 years. He lived there for about 20 years. And then he's finally discovered, and when they discover him, they come to see him, and he had built his own little civilization. He was, he was living there by himself, but he had all these little structures and said, well, what do you have here? What, what is this? He said, well, this is my house. This is where I live. This is over here. This is my favorite restaurant. I like to go there for lunch. Uh, this is my favorite dinner restaurant. I like to go there for dinner. Um, on the other side of the island is where I go for vacation. And uh, he was just showing them all around and identifying everything. He said, well, what's this building over here? Oh, that's my church. I go there on Sunday mornings and I worship the Lord. And, and he's telling them all about that. I said, well, what about that one over there? Well, that's the church I used to go to. I don't go to that church anymore. I decided to go to this church now. You know, and it just kind of illustrates how many, if, is that our story? And I'm not throwing mud at anybody because I understand that there are good reasons to move from one church to another. Sometimes it's geographic location. Sometimes it's, it's a misalignment, uh, you know, or there's something that is not right in that church and something that is, is or it's the best thing that you can do. I get all of that, but I think too often we say, oh, well, I don't like something that they're doing, so I'll go somewhere else. I'll, I'll find a different place. And I think Jesus invented something very different, and I think we have a great example of it. I mentioned uh, Pentecost and the Holy Spirit coming upon the early church. We read about that in Acts chapter 2, and what it looked like is the Holy Spirit descended upon them, and there were tongues of fire, and they were speaking in different languages. And at the end of Acts chapter 2, there's this powerful summary statement of what started to take place 
immediately following Pentecost. And I want to read that to you. It's chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Uh, It's page 1694, just a few pages over from where we were in John's Gospel. And this is what we're told about the early church. And I know I've read these words in here before, and I promise you I will read them again. But it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. We spent a whole sermon series on that one verse uh, in the devoted series that we started the year with. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Did you hear that? It was a powerful example of just the type of unity that Christ prayed for. Just the type of unity where they were all together. They had everything in common. Nobody nobody held anything back. Everybody was all in. And it happened. The result of that unity takes place in the last phrase. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The world around them saw that, and they wanted to be a part of it, and they stepped into it. And so when Jesus said in verse 21, 20 and 21, it happened. They were all one, like mind and purpose. And the world outside saw that And said we want to be a part of it. There's another example of it that follows a little bit later. In chapter 4, if you flip over a couple of pages, we hear the words uh, that they were all one. All the believers were one in heart and mind. Sorry, I'm on verse 32, 33. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything as they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. They were all one, and we're told in verse 33 that with great power, with supernatural power. The Holy Spirit empowered through the unity, empowered them, and much grace was upon them all. So we know that it's happened before, and I believe it can happen again. And I don't think it was the Holy Spirit that failed. I don't think the Holy Spirit stopped empowering supernatural unity. I think the church stopped following. I think we stopped following. And so I wonder why we do that. And as I was reflecting on that and meditating on that, I was drawn back to uh, the idea of unity busters and unity builders. I shared this in that message before, and I've updated it a little bit, but the concept is the same. That there are things and there are things that people do, and there are people who build unity within a church, and there are things, things that people do, and people who bust unity, who break up unity, who bring disunity within a church, within a congregation. So I want to look at unity busters against unity builders and the idea of supernatural unity. So the first unity buster is when, when I focus more on my preferences and getting what I want out of a worship service or out of a facility or out of a program, that breaks down unity. 
But the antidote to that is this idea of supernatural surrender. When I surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit within me and surrender, to, surrender my preferences to the greater good. And if you were here a little over a year and a half ago when I preached my first sermon on the candidating weekend, I preached on this very topic. Because it's one of the most powerful principles for life and peace in the kingdom of God that I have ever encountered. That when we will set our preferences aside and seek the supernatural unity that comes from surrendering, and we all surrender to the Holy Spirit, then we will experience the kind of unity that Christ had in mind. Because we all have preferences. We have preferences for, for different types of food, for different temperatures. Some of you are a little too chilly. Some of you are a little too warm. About 60-70% of you are just right. And if you're in leadership, you kind of got to aim for that 60-70% and tolerate the 15 or 20% on either side that are too hot or too cold and want to make a change that would cause a greater percentage of the people to be uncomfortable. We have preferences with entertainment. We have preferences with decor. My goodness. You know, there's a whole network to talk about the different preferences in decorations. We have different favorite colors. Some people always wear blue. Other people always wear green. Other people always wear black. Whatever the case may be, we have preferences. And those preferences can move inside the church as well. And so suddenly we have preferences on worship. And we have, I think only a certain type of worship is actually worship. And all the other worship is just entertainment or, or is, you know, watered down or whatever the case may be. And so we have preferences on worship style. We have preferences on which version of Scripture we should read. And there are denominations that have split over these things, Right? We have preferences on which programs should be offered and when they should be offered and how they should be offered and who should lead them and so on and so forth. And the thing we have to remember is that just because your preference is stronger doesn't mean it's right. It just means it's going to be harder for you to surrender that preference to the greater good. Or just because you have a position that gives you a little bit louder voice, you would be delighted to know that we sing songs at Linwood that I don't really care for. Or that there are things that take place here that aren't my first preference or my first choice. And I get to surrender that too. And there are people on our local board of administration or on our staff who, who don't have every preference that they want secured just because of their position or because of the strength of their preference. And the more we can surrender those to the Holy Spirit and allow the Holy Spirit to guide and direct and move through a group of people, the more we can experience the type of unity that we're talking about. Very, very seldom will it ever come without significant sacrifice, the type of unity that we're talking about, because it's an act of love. The next one is my rights, my rights versus our supernatural mission. That when I put my rights as an individual or my rights as a human being or my rights as whatever you fill in the blank over and above the supernatural mission that God has for this place, that's going to break down unity. But when I surrender my rights and focus more on my responsibility to that supernatural unity, to that common purpose, to that joint vision that we have, then I get to experience supernatural unity. We get to experience supernatural unity when we get our eyes off of our rights and onto our responsibility to that organization. Some of you were alive when JFK said the famous words, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. The first is a focus on rights. When we say, what can the country do for me? What can the, what can the government do for me? What can the collective government or, or the collective nation do for me? 
versus what can I do for the society, for the government, for the country? And I would say that the same question works in, in the church, not what can my church do for me, but what can I do for my church? And we understand that a lot of times people come in and they don't have all this figured out. And so we're patient with new people, but I get increasingly impatient with people who've been here for a long time and really ought to be asking the second question rather than the first. And we're fortunate that churches just can't make it if they don't have a good number of the people asking the second question. What can I do for my church? What can I do for the new person who's coming? How can I make my life about reaching new people for Christ, giving them a place to belong, and helping them grow in their faith? What's my part to play in all of that? So there's my rights versus our supernatural mission. Then there's this idea, and I I probably should have figured out better words because we don't use apathy and autocracy all that often, but apathy is a lack of feeling. It's laziness. It's withdrawn. Autocracy is being autocratic, being more of a dictator. And so we find that there are unhealthy extremes on both ends. We can either be completely disengaged, and I just don't care, or we can be a tyrant wielding our will, seeking control, And it's the authenticity that we find in the very middle between those two extremes that is is our part to play. So, So it's our apathy, our autocracy, the seeking of my comfort or my control on one end versus the supernatural authenticity that is completely engaged, is compassionate to those that may be different, is working to cooperate and collaborate, that word co-labor, to work together for that common purpose, that common vision. And so we contrast my apathy and my autocracy or my, my tyranny with that supernatural authenticity. And then the last one kind of boils them all together, and that's when I let my ego get in the way, my pride get in the way. My flesh get in the way. That is always going to break down unity in a church. And when anybody does that, it's going to have the potential to break down unity in the church. And that's contrasted with a supernatural humility. When we tap into our true self, the part of us that is, that is experiencing the divine nature, where the Spirit of God is mingling with our spirit and is influencing our mind, will, and emotions to do and seek the things of God rather than our own preferences rather than asserting ourselves. This is the part that follows the Holy Spirit. I believe that the ego is the main thing that brings disunity into the church, that that when we focus on ourselves, when our pride gets in the way, when our preferences get in the way, when our rights get in the way, our ego is what gets offended when we get our feelings hurt. It's almost always ego. Think about the last time you were offended by somebody in the church. Was your ego involved in any way? Did you not get the recognition you were hoping for? Or, or did somebody, you know, throw shade on something that you had worked hard on and, and you didn't get the, the attaboy or you didn't get the accolade? So often it's our feelings that get hurt, our ego that gets hurt. Or maybe somebody didn't come when you thought that they would come and, and you, your ego is what gets offended. It's not usually the Holy Spirit. In fact, one author <laughs> says that the Holy Spirit in us is unoffendable. That the Spirit of God in us is unoffendable. And if we can get in step with the Holy Spirit, as Galatians 5 talks about, keeping in step with the Holy Spirit, we become unoffendable because our ego is what gets offended. Nine times out of ten, maybe 99 out of 100, it's our ego that got wounded, our ego that got offended, and not the Spirit. 
within us. In fact, James spoke about this a little bit. You don't need to turn there, but James 4, uh, he gets into this and he names it. He said, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. So you kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Now, fortunately, there's not a lot of killing uh, that's going on and coveting, but there are some quarrels and there are some fights, and some people have left church because they were so full of quarreling and fighting, and I understand why you would want to do that. But I love that he says, you do not have because you do not ask God. And he goes on from there, and that's a different message, and maybe we'll preach that one here someday. But, but he basically says, you don't ask God. You don't consult the Holy Spirit within you. And you don't pray the prayer that says, is this really something to get upset about? Is this just me kind of getting my toe stubbed? And I can surrender my preference, and I can seek the better uh, path of the supernatural unity. Because our ego focuses on our preferences. It focuses on our rights. It focuses on our comfort and our control. And it focuses on me and my little part to play, my little place to stand. Whereas the spirit within us, the supernatural uh, empowerment that we get through the Holy Spirit, focuses us to surrender our preferences. It focuses on our responsibilities, not our rights. It focuses on our cooperation and our collaboration. And it focuses on what we are a part of more than our part. And when you reach a tipping point in the vast majority of a congregation, the vast majority of a church are focused on what they are a part of, not just what they, their part to play, not just their preferences and their rights and their, and their uh, comfort. That's when the world catches on fire with the gospel. And I'm, I'm just waiting for... For the day when this happens all around us, we pray for revival. I believe revival comes through that kind of supernatural unity when people set their own preferences aside and they focus not on their rights but on their supernatural mission and allow the Holy Spirit to move in them and to move through them. And I'm well aware that a few people might be offended of what I'm saying right now. That's not my intent. But it could be an indicator that the ego is involved. Because I don't think the Holy Spirit is offended when we talk about these things and when we set our preferences and our rights and our comfort aside and we focus on the things of God and ask Him to supernaturally empower them within us. But that takes a degree of humility that can be very, very uncomfortable. In fact, the bottom line today, I had about eight different bottom lines as I was preparing for this message. And you can't have eight different bottom lines. You've got to have one bottom line. Only one can be at the bottom. And so I've worked all those other statements into the message, but here's the one that I settled on, and I think it's kind of the irreducible uh, statement. Supernatural unity is a natural result of supernatural humility. The Holy Spirit at work within us gets our eyes off of me and mine and onto ours. And we put we before me. We take on the role of humility that says it's really for the greater good. It's not about me. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. That's a Rick Warren thing. I think C.S. Lewis might have said it too. But we see a perfect example of this in the Trinity. And we've been coming back to the Trinity each time, each week, because we see the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in perfect union with each other. And they're not the same. It's not uniformity. The Father is different than the Son, who is different than the Holy Spirit, who is different than the Father. But they're all God, and they're all after the same thing. They all have the same supernatural purpose. 
And so it's not uniformity, but it is supernatural humility. It is supernatural love. It is supernatural unity. And as we bring the Holy Spirit into us, and the Holy Spirit in me resonates with the Holy Spirit in you, now we can make some progress. Now we can take some new ground. Now we can experience the supernatural unity. And so we tie it all back to the, to the marching band analogy. They're all playing the same song, wearing the same clothes, practicing, dedicated, setting time apart for this, practicing on their own at home to make sure they know their part and can execute their part well. But then it all comes together and there is a synchronization that takes place and there is a, a, a result of everybody being about the same thing at the same time and working together for a long time. It's a sight to behold. And in my research for this, I learned one more thing that was really, really powerful. They said that from a freshman to a sophomore, and from a sophomore to a junior, and from a junior to a senior, with this huge time commitment, lots of dedication, 96% repeat. 96% of the freshmen come back for their sophomore year, and the sophomores come back for their junior year, and the juniors come back for their senior year. You would think with that high commitment that, yeah, I might tough it out for one year, but I'm not going to do it four years in a row. Are you kidding me? That's a lot of time. That's a lot of effort. And the way that it was worded to me was the family and the camaraderie that develops through that shared sense of purpose and that commitment and that devotion to accomplishing the goal is something the kids absolutely love. So I think it is an example of the supernatural unity, and it's possible. It's available to each and every one of us as we set aside our, our preferences and our rights and our responsibilities as we focus more and more and more on the common purpose, on the common goal. We focus less on our part and more on what we are a part of. And so in a few moments, we're going to celebrate baptism. Baptism is one of those big steps that we take in the faith. One of those things that we get to celebrate as a body of believers, somebody says, I am a child of God. And they stand before their family, before their church family, before their congregation, and they say, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. I intend to follow him all the days of my life. And they make that public profession of faith. And so I just share that with you. I'm excited about that. We're going to sing a song of response. That's your opportunity, kind of your last opportunity uh, today. If you want to be baptized today, there's no reason you can't be baptized today. Even if you didn't plan ahead and bring clothes and everything else, we got sweatpants you can change into. We've got towels. We've got all of that. So if today's the day and you feel the Holy Spirit encouraging you to take that step, I'm going to head over to this, this door over on this side, and I'll hang out there for a few minutes. And if you want to be baptized today, just come and talk to me. We have a couple of others that have already planned ahead, and we get to celebrate that with them in just a moment. But right now, I'd invite you to pray as we as we close this time of looking into God's word and pray that, that each and every person will respond in faith to what they've heard. Lord Jesus, we do seek to bring you glory and honor in everything that we do. And Lord, I thank you for, for all the people in your church, in your family, who regularly set aside their own preferences and their own rights and their own comfort, their own desire to be in control. And allow your spirit to work in them, to work through them. Thank you for that. There's many people here that call Linwood their church home who, who do this on a regular basis, Lord. And, and it's just such a beautiful thing to see. And we pray for those who, who have been convicted in some way. 
And as always, Lord, we pray that that the response would be one of faith. The response would be one of deeper reliance upon you. The response would be one of deeper surrender to you to allow your sacrificial love to live in us and to work its wealth out in us and through us. May your spirit move in this time. May we each respond in faith to what we sense you saying to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.